The Patrick Madrid Show is the real deal. They got my stamp of approval, baby. Peace out. Compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's The Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. All right, we are back. Hour three here, and it's going to go quickly. So if you've been getting a busy signal, just hit redial, please. 888-914-9149. That number is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters, 888-914-9149. Let's start off with Jackie in Miami. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning, Patrick. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a question to ask you. Um okay. My question is that, like, um, I feel like I'm always getting attacked and hurt through, like, my jobs, and I'm always getting fired. Mm. And it's like when I get close to God, people hate me more. I don't know why. And then I literally just got fired, like, for my jobs already. And I was working at, a like, a private school, and my last job was working actually in the Catholic school, which is really sad. Mm. And it just... What kind of, what, what kind of reasons when you have your... I guess exit interview. Did they ever offer you a reason for why they're terminating you? I mean, I I'm always honest with like the situation that I'm like going through. Like I got bullied and all that, but it's not just me. Other teachers got like resigned and all that stuff. And hmm. and I feel- well, what do they tell you? So when the lady holding the clipboard is saying, "I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go." Do, the, do these people give you a reason or do they just say... No, not really, not really, mm. but, I, but I, I I want an explanation, but they don't give me an explanation. Well, hmm. So I, if I you go ask... To church, I go to church and I go to Mass and all that, and I'm always asking God to help me. That's good. Keep doing that. I mean, I can imagine how discouraging this must be for you. But just to go back to those interviews, at the, at the exit interview... If you were to say, well, I understand you're firing me, but I don't understand why you're firing me. Why are you firing me? What did they say? Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, hopefully it won't happen again. <laughs> I, I hope it doesn't for your I sake. I mean, I'm, I'm not getting any luck, Patrick, because like, it's been like a year and a half I've been searching for a job here in Miami, but it's just mm-hmm. I feel like everyone's against me. It's like I go to schools, I leave my resume, I do Indeed um, um, mm-hmm. sites and stuff like that, but nothing. It's like, they- do you notice any common denominator in any of these? So you met, I think you said there were four jobs in a row you got fired from, and that's a terrible situation. My heart goes out to you, Jackie. It really does. But as you look back on these four jobs, mm-hmm. are there any similarities between them? Are there any, um, consistent things in each of these jobs that you could point to, to say in every single case, this factor was present. And if so, what what is that? I mean, my first job, I I worked at a public school, but they put me with like the worst teacher of all in the worst classroom, but they never told me that. You know what I mean? Well, I think so. But what I mean is my, my question is a little bit different. As you look at these four jobs, Mm-hmm. Is there anything about the jobs that is the same in each one of them? Other than yourself. I mean, you obviously are a common denominator, but I mean, outside of yourself, is there anything that else that you can identify? Mm-hmm. Is it possible that maybe there's something in your own attitude that is getting, that they're picking up on it and 
it's it rubs people the wrong way that's a possibility is it um communication issue do you have difficulty communicating with people and maybe they're picking up on that um do you feel negative about the job or the conditions of the job maybe they're picking up on that it could be something like that okay you know? i mean it seems like you do have a point there i mean i've noticed mm-hmm. the four jobs that i have um, i mean i i got fired in 2018 and then i got fired in 2023 two jobs there and then um 24 i got fired here in the, in the catholic school mm-hmm. but um but i've noticed like you just mentioned you just opened my eye um I, I think I see a pattern because first of all, because they want me to work in a school. That's number one. So repeat that. I didn't quite catch that. What's number one? I feel like number one is more like maybe God doesn't want me to work in education because I understand being a teacher is hard and stressful and you have to put up with the administrator, the parents, and the kids. It's a lot of work. I understand. Okay. But I feel like teachers tend to throw a lot of pressure on you and they like hurt you and through all these negative stuff instead of just having a bit of self-control because I'm, I'm actually a very calm person. I really am. I'm very calm. I don't give attitude or anything. Mm-hmm. But, so if you're looking at those four jobs mm-hmm. and you're thinking, okay, the next job, I don't want to get fired again. Right. What would you change if you, if you could look at this honestly? And even if it's looking in the mirror and saying, you know, is there something about me or my demeanor or my attitude, what comes to your mind that you would say, I need to change this? What would that be? I think um, I would probably focus not in education, probably focus on something else. But another thing I've noticed, like, um, I'm sorry if I'm jumping back to the conversation of the previous one, but I've also noticed that, like, since I have a higher education, people tend to envy me. And then when I do something good in the school, like, I feel like teachers hate me. So they pull me down. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like everyone's against me when I do something good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, That's a perception that if you feel that way, it Uh it could be that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of something called projection where we all can fall into a situation where the thing that's a problem in us, we can project onto other people. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, maybe you should get some counseling for a counselor who could be able to help you bring to the surface specifically what this is. But I'm just thinking out loud here, Jackie. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. What if it turned out to be that your sense of everybody being jealous or you know negative towards you might be your own projection onto them? If you have feelings like that and you're projecting and they're picking up on that and they're saying, ooh, we don't like her. Um, maybe it's something like that. Okay. That actually makes sense, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, and and I don't know you outside of our phone call, so I have no reason to think anything one way or the other, but that comes to my mind as a possible solution because if it's four jobs in a row, there's something Mm -hmm. that these people are picking up on in you that, you know, maybe some counseling could bring that out where you could say, oh, okay, that's something I'm going to change. I'm going to really make an right. effort to, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, do you mind if I add something, if you don't mind? I don't want to take sure. a lot of your time. No, I'm um, But I also noticed that, like, the principals always put me with, like, the worst class and the worst teachers. So that's another thing that I have noticed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Could be. That could be. Um, I think you're onto something here, Jackie, that mm-hmm. you mentioned you had a, how did you say it, a breakthrough or, you know, a bit of an illumination? 
If you can, and maybe through the city, maybe through the county, maybe through the diocese or the archdiocese, okay. Okay. you might be able to get some job counseling and have an opportunity to talk maybe at no cost, depending on what programs are available, and to talk with somebody and let that other person spend more than 10 minutes like we're doing and just really work mm-hmm. with you to see is there something that you could say, all right, from now on, I will never do that again, or I'll always do this again, and mm-hmm. give it another try. Right, right. I mean, um, I always pray like the St. Michael and the rosary, and I will keep that like a rosary in my pocket. And like, I felt like more protected with God when I had that with me. Yeah, and and that's important. That's good. I'm glad that you have Jesus at the center of your life and prayer. But I don't know that that in itself is going to fix this issue. And I'm not a counselor, so I only have my own opinions on this issue. But I have a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh, yeah, that if you sit down with a counselor and have a few sessions and really, really look in the mirror and be honest with yourself, do this, what do they call it, a fearless moral inventory, and look to see if there's something in you that you could change. I have a feeling that when you go back to the next job, it's going to be much more successful. Would be my. I guess. think so too, and I appreciate I appreciate it, Patrick. I really do. You're welcome. Well, I my heart goes out to you, but there's always tomorrow. It's only a day <laughs> away, or so I'm told. And uh, just keep your chin up. Be positive. I smile will. a lot. Doesn't hurt to mm-hmm. smile. Think well of other people, project positive, project happiness, project, you know, a a friendly demeanor. Those things can go a long way, a really long way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, thank you so much, Patrick. I You're welcome. It. Thank you. I hope you call me six months from now and say, you know what, it worked, and I've got the best job ever. That's my hope and prayer for you, Jackie. Thank you. Uh, let's go now to where are we going. Let's go to Natalia in Minneapolis. Good morning, Natalia. Hello. Hi. How old are you? I'm twelve. Ah, uh, that's great. Well, I'm glad you called. What's your question? Um, my question is, why did God technically punish Adam and Eve if He already knew what was going to happen? Well, because even though he knew what would happen, he didn't cause it to happen. So this is kind of mysterious for us, and I know why this is something you're wondering about. If God already knew that it would happen, which he did, then are Adam and Eve really at fault? Does it mean that it, it would have to happen that way? And the answer is no. It didn't have to happen that way. So God gave... Pardon me? Oh, was that your sister, Natalia? I heard another voice there. Sorry, that was my brother. (laughs) Okay, tell little brother, hush, I'm talking to Patrick Madrid on the phone right now. Um, (laughs) See, God knew what would happen, but he didn't cause it to happen. So that's the thing to remember here. God did not force Adam and Eve to do this. And if he had forced them, then they should not have been punished because they would not have done anything wrong if they didn't have freedom to choose for or against God. And you know, it's interesting, Natalia, is not only would it be wrong to punish Adam and Eve if they didn't have any freedom and they just had to do it, but it also would be wrong to reward them 
if they did the right thing because they would not have had any choice in it. So it would have been neither good nor bad for them. It would have just been what they were forced into doing. So that's how we can know they weren't forced. They had freedom to choose. And that's why what they did by disobeying God was a sin. And yes, God does know all things from all eternity. He, he, there's, there's nothing that can be known that God doesn't know. But that's not the same thing as causing it to happen. Does that make sense okay. to you? Yeah. So let's, let, let, let's use an example in your own life. Uh, is there some rule in your house that your mom and dad have laid down that you have to obey? Something um, like chores? No. Or... Um, How about like no lying to your parents? Is that a rule in your house? Uh, yeah. Okay. And that's a good rule. So let's say that God already knows everything, right? He knows everything that can be known, including he knows what you're going to do tomorrow. Are you with me? Do you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. So let's say tomorrow, and don't do this, of course, but let's say tomorrow that you violated your parents' rule about lying and you lied to your parents. Now, God knows that that's going to happen ahead of time, but did God force you to lie, or did you just lie on your own? Well, I would just, like, do it on my own. Right, right, right. So that's one way to think about it, is that even though God knows these things, he's not forcing you to do that. He doesn't force you to lie or to tell the truth. That's your freedom that you have from God, because he loves you. Yeah, okay. Does it seem clearer now? A little bit clearer? Yeah. I'm glad. Are you homeschooled? Yeah. Do you like homeschooling? Yeah. I'm glad. Well, good. You're thinking important thoughts, and um, I'm glad I had a chance to chat with you about that. Do tell your mother hello and thank you for letting me call, okay? Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, we'll go to Mark now in Alvin, Texas. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for listening to uh, info and everything that you give everybody. But I yeah, get thank so you. frustrated. I was listening to your uh, your comments on the IVF and and Trump and everything, and I just get so frustrated with American politics because it's just so dirty, and it, all, and it always has been. And I guess the question that I would have for you, and by the way, I voted for Trump, but that doesn't matter. I voted for Trump, but okay. I never had a, any 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 uh illusion that Trump was this knight in white, white and shiny armor, all that stuff. I know that. And my question to you is, if you, do you think there's ever been a president, if you knew what they all believed in their hearts, mm -hmm. could you, could they be theologically lined up with you and me? No, certainly not. So, I, I, I mean, we're all sinners, you, you of course. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, yeah, but here's the, here's the difference, if you don't mind me jumping in, because I think I know where sure, you're coming sure. with this. I don't expect, because I know it's impossible, that any candidate is going to be absolutely 100% sinless and pure and always correct. That's impossible. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I do expect that any given candidate, and we're talking here about the presidency. If you were running for, you know, dog catcher, <laughs> you know, your feelings about X, Y, and Z wouldn't really matter. Um, but if you're, if you're running for a national office, president, um, senator, congressman, such like, 
there are certain things that your beliefs on moral issues can have terrible effects in society. You have the power in that office to to do terrible things or to do really good things. So I don't expect any candidate to be 100% on anything because I know it's not possible. But I do expect that, that if I'm going to vote for a candidate, I want to vote for one who who comes the closest to fulfilling and doing the right thing on these momentous issues. And I used abortion as an example earlier in the, in the show today. Um, to me, that's an example of where if I couldn't trust a candidate to make the right decision on even that basic issue, I'm not going to vote for that person, especially if he or she is ca- campaigning on that as a thing, you know, but all, all I'm saying is that there are other they're different, of course, but there are other extremely important moral issues in addition to abortion, as important as that is. And the U.S. bishops have said that's the most pressing moral issue of the day. I agree with them. But there are other very important issues, too. So um, all I'm proposing is, and I want to, I've gotten a couple of emails that have said, you know, I disagree with you. Well, I just want to make sure people disagree with what I'm really saying. And that is, what I'm really saying is, we should always seek to vote for the candidate who's the closest to where we need to be without being perfect. But there are situations in which, because of the problems with the candidates themselves, where theoretically it would be difficult, if not impossible, to say, I can vote for either one of these people. And I can't tell anyone who to vote for. All I'm proposing is this is a moral framework that one could approach an election and a candidate to say, how does this play out? That's where I'm coming from. So tell me your thoughts, Mark. I've sort of dominated the conversation there. No, I'm I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I'm I'm really uh, I'm on the same page with you. But it's just so complicated. The Supreme Court just ruled, I think, about in favor of the IVF. That's a human being, and it was Trump that put those supreme. If those he wouldn't have put those Supreme Court justices in there, they wouldn't have did, did that. I don't think. Are you thinking yeah. about the Alabama Supreme Court that came? Their decision came out last week. That was Alabama, and he, of okay, course, okay. didn't have anything I'm, to do with I'm that. I'm mistaken. I'm mistaken. Yeah. I'm mistaken. I but that, well, Roe v. Wade would not have been overturned had it not he put those judges on there. Yes, I, I guarantee you. Yes, and he deserves <laughs> credit for that. Credit where credit yeah. is due. I do believe that. And it's uh, but anyway, it's just it's real complicated, and I just uh, American politics just runs me up a wall. I mean, I love, I love, I love America, but I love God first. How about that? Well, I share that view with you, Mark, and it does make it difficult. Have you ever thought about running for office so you can help us fix this problem? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, but I, I, uh, I hear what you're saying about we need to, um, I hear, I hear exactly what you're saying. It's just, uh, it's so difficult in America because it's so convoluted. And I think, I think convolution. Convolution is the work of the devil, too, by the way. I do believe that. So I don't think you're wrong about that. I don't. I, I do I do appreciate uh, what your your thoughts and everything, and I hear what you're saying, and I know you can't say who to vote for, but anybody I vote for, I have no illusions that they're in line with me all the way. <laughs> Nor do I, Mark. I'm with you on that. And uh, just to, not to put too fine a point on it, I absolutely, me personally, just talking about me, I would never vote for a candidate who supports abortion. No way. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. I'll be right back.
Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Czestochowa, and the infant child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at relevantradio.com slash Poland. That's relevantradio.com slash Poland. Keeping it relevant. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Join the conversation at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on Coast to Coast on Relevant Radio. That's right. Taco Tuesday is upon us, and I hope you have a good one. A note here from, uh, well, it's an article really from Monsignor Charles Pope, a great priest in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. He's got a great article here. How to Make a Compelling Confession in Four Easy Steps. And I'll just give you a snippet of this, but I'll give you the four easy steps. He says, for many, the sacrament of confession is experienced in a rather perfunctory way. Upon preparing to go to confession, many are content to look at some matters pertaining to external behavior. I got angry with my children. I had lustful thoughts. I was distracted in prayer, or I didn't pray as much as I should. I gossiped and so forth. While the confession of these sorts of things is good and proper, it always it also rather remains true that for confession to really heal you, it's necessary that you go deeper. It is necessary to examine your deeper drives and motives for sin and to examine not only what you have done, but ponder why. So I will skip ahead of the, in the article, ahead to the different things, the bullet points that he gives, and they are as follows. Number one, observe your sinful behavior, but don't stop there. See it as a symptom of something deeper. Number two, once you've observed what you do, ask why. Let the Holy Spirit show you the deeper drives that give rise to sinful behavior. To this end, it is also helpful, rather, to avail yourself of teaching on the seven deadly sins, which are pride, anger, lust, greed, gluttony, envy, and sloth. There are a few good resources out there that that he recommends to you. He says Peter Kraft wrote a good book on the subject called Back to Virtue. That's one that he gives a recommendation for. Uh, In addition to the seven deadly sins, there are innumerable attitudes that give rise to sin, things like fear, indifference, laziness, contempt, impurity, hatred, malice, cowardice, jealousy, revenge, disobedience, hard-heartedness, stinginess, selfishness, pettiness, spite, neglect, prejudice, arrogance, self-centeredness, pomposity. You're saying, is this the end of the list? No, there's more insincerity, impatience, infidelity, ingratitude, disobedience, and on and on and on. Focus on these deeper drives, he says, and these attitudes that give rise to your bad behavior. He says, learn to name them. Learn to know what your motives and tactics are. And the third point, he says, is having prepared in this way, when you go to confession, Confess not only bad behaviors, which are the symptoms, but also, as best you can, try to articulate these deeper drives and attitudes that are in you that are causing these behaviors. See them for what they are and learn their moves. 
Lastly, number four, repeat the process frequently throughout the year, and thus you'll gain self-knowledge and self-mastery through the years. Confession will break open for you, and it will no longer be merely a perfunctory laundry list of mere external behaviors. Confession will become a compelling and transformative sacrament that breaks the bondage of sin by the power of God's grace. And his last line in this article is, try this method, never known to fail. And I do believe that. So check it out, and this is perfect for Lent. Uh, We're in Lent right now, obviously, so Cyrus will get a link to that post, and you can check it out, maybe share it with your friends. Uh, Let's go to Lori now at Oceanside. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Patrick. I have been wanting to call you for a while about this issue. Um, I'm a nurse, and this has to do with, I know that you're talking a lot about the test tube babies and Mm -hmm. like not having artificially created embryos, Mm -hmm. which I don't have any problem with that. But it seems to contradict the church's position on end-of-life care. So at the beginning of life, I guess it's okay to do all of this, but I mean, it's not okay. But then at the end of life, when someone stops eating because they have dementia or something like that, which is a natural course of the illness, Mm -hmm. the church puts says that they should put in a feeding tube or put them on life support. And that, to me, it just kind of contradicts the whole um, thing about not using interventions, not using medical interventions to create children, but why can we use medical interventions to prolong suffering, essentially? Right. Well, let me let me offer you a thought here, Lori. So the distinction between the two, I think you're talking about IVF, right, as the first part? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the distinction between the two is that in the case of IVF, the it's not that the church says that there can't be intervention. So let's say the woman has endometriosis. The church says, yes, have an intervention uh, to remove the endometriosis or to uh, curtail it if possible. If there is a uh, blocked fallopian tube or some other condition, the church does not say that there can't be medical interventions. The church says, if it's medically legitimate and there's nothing immoral about it, go for it, have it, do it, especially if it will help in the area of fertility. But IVF is in a different category because the intervention itself involves an action that is immoral unto itself, which is the fertilization of the ovum outside of the context of marital intimacy and love. It becomes a lab experiment, and the church says that's immoral, and it's an attack on the dignity of the unborn child who has a right not only to know his parents and to be uh, within the context of his his parents' love for each other, but also to be born of the natural act itself as opposed to being the subject of a lab experiment. That too is part of, of what makes this the foundation of IVF immoral. So it's, it's not that the church is saying you can't have medical invention, interventions, far from it, but certain medical interventions by their very nature are immoral. And those are the things that the church says we can't do. So now let's jump forward. And I will throw it back to you, Lori, so you can tell me what you think. Now let's jump forward to end of life and what the church is saying in the case that you gave, uh, a gastronasal feeding tube, for example, is that it's entirely natural for the body to require nutrition and hydration. 
And if the swallowing reflex is gone now because of the illness or if the person's um, recognition that she needs to eat goes away, what, ha- what have you, it's not in any way immoral to introduce a method so the person can receive those basic necessities of life, nutrition and hydration. Now, it would get to the, or in some cases, it can get to the point where the body physically can no longer assimilate nutrition. It can no longer assimilate hydration. And I know those are, as I understand it, relatively uncommon, but they do happen. So the church doesn't insist upon ongoing intervention in a case where it's no longer possible to achieve its purpose as the body is breaking down. And similarly, the church also does not say that medical intervention must be sustained in the case of something that is extraordinary, like let's say a breathing machine or something like that. If the person can't survive without the breathing machine, it's not immoral to withhold that medical intervention as a way to allow the person to die peacefully and naturally. So that's where there's a distinction between a feeding tube at the end of life and IVF at the beginning of life. Does that make more sense? It does make more sense. I think my my main, I mean, I've been a nurse for 40 years and I've done ICU hospice. Mm-hmm. I've done it all. And believe me, it is very common for people to lose their desire for food and fluid at the end mm-hmm. of life because they don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. So when people aren't hungry, of course, our instinct as humans is to feed, force feed them. And then you end up with all other kinds of complications like aspiration, pneumonia, and right. Um, things like that. So I'm just, I just have pretty strong <laughs> views on the, on the end of life, especially um, mm-hmm. like doing, doing things to prolong, basically to prolong suffering um, right. and not letting the natural process to occur because that is the natural process. Like when you look at plants and stuff, they dry up mm-hmm. because they, stop taking up the nourishment and the water out of the ground and people kind of do the same thing. Right. You know, as you're describing this, Lori, I'm thinking of Terry Schiavo. I'm sure you remember her ordeal. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so this is where, to me, it seems like we have to be very careful. And I understand that's what you're saying too. We have to be very careful because it's not always immediately clear where is the line between somebody who really can't assimilate any more nutrition. They really just can't. They're physically unable to do that. And so right. we let them we let them go. Versus somebody like Terry Schiavo, who died an excruciating, horrifying death by being dehydrated and starved to death for the time it took her to die. Um, she, her body was entirely capable of assimilating nutrition and hydration, and they just starved her to death. And that was a heinous thing. So where is that line in between? I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. Right. I rely on people like you, you know, with your expertise right. to find right. that line. Now, to me, I don't think she starved to death. She she should have died when she, she had the original. Death. I don't re- She starved. Okay, well, death. they stopped feeding her. Okay, they stopped feeding yeah. her and she And they stopped, stopped hydrating her, too. You know. Yeah, but she, see, those things actually cause people to have a better death because the endorphins in your brain increase when you're, when you're dehydrated. So God has it planned out really well for us to have a. Yeah. It was, it was a terrible thing what they did to Terry Scheibe. Just ask her brother. He was there with her all the way through it. He knows he's spoken out tremendously on this issue over the years since then. And um, I I I know it's not something you want to discuss or argue over, but 
Um, we can put no. Terry Schiavo's example as a side note, but the main thing is, you're right. There comes a time when, for some people, the body just can no longer accept it. That is true. And the church says, just to go back to your original question, you're not obliged to continue with a therapy that's no longer working. Right. That's futile, basically. Right. If it's a futile treatment, right. But I really right. appreciate your... I, I like the way that you approach things. It's I always like listening to your show because oh, you're very you. practical and clear. So... I'm going to be going to the Bemidji. I think you're going to no, it's the Steubenville one that I'm going to this summer. So I hope to see you there. Oh, that I'll will come be and wonderful. Introduce myself. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So. Well, I look forward to that. And uh, thanks for the call. Thanks for listening. Uh, we have to take a quick time out, and when we come back, I'll be talking again with our vice president for programming. Uh, Josh Raymond. We're going to talk more about what we've been talking about throughout the whole three hours this day, and that is why you need to get closer to Jesus in the Holy Eucharist, because you have situations in your life. I have them in my life. Everybody does. You need a miracle. You want to strengthen your marriage. You have a wayward child. You have other situations. Jesus has the answer, and he's waiting for you in the Blessed Sacrament. Did you know that? And if you knew that, what's preventing you from drawing closer to him? Well, we have some ideas and strategies to share with you right after this. Today, we'd like to thank Tammy, who's listening in Florida, for donating her 2016 BMW Z4. Cool. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com car. That's relevantradio.com car. Patrick Madrid is on Coast to Coast on Relevant Radio. <laughs> I love the Taco Tuesday music around here. Well done, Cyrus. Here's a gold star sticker. Here's two gold star stickers because you did that little yelping thing that you do. Let me hear it again. Yeah, you got that down. I like tacos. Oh, who doesn't? Um, hey, by the way, um, you may know me from, among other things, my radio show, of course, but you may know me from a book uh, that I edited called Surprised by Truth, filled with stories of converts. And over the years, I've spent a lot of time talking to converts. And one of my colleagues here at Relevant Radio, Josh Raymond, just came into the studio. And, and Josh, I know your story, but you yourself are a convert to the Catholic faith. You were uh, Protestant before that, That's and right. uh, since we were talking about the Eucharistic Congress, it occurs to me that you have a convert's insight. I'm a cradle Catholic, so I don't have that insight, but you do as a convert to the faith and the Eucharist, and maybe that would be something we could talk about. Yeah, well, in your book, Surprised by Truth, that was one of the early books I read before I came into the church. That, mm. another really instrumental one, uh, one of your friends, Carl Keating, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, was yeah. a, a very, very important book uh, for me coming into the church. And so, yeah, it was... Uh, as I came into the church, I was going through the RCIAA process at our parish there, and I ended up having the priest at one point, the priest that was overseeing this wonderful priest from South Africa, Father Dawson, and he spoke in that rich South African uh, kind of accent there. Yeah. But he he got really animated one night, almost to the point that seeming like he was he was on the verge of getting upset and kind of yelling at us, but he said it again and again. He said, listen— you have to believe that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. If you don't believe that, you cannot become Catholic. And he said it again and again. And I thought, okay, yes, I, I understand this. I, I, I know this, yes. And there was 
I, I won't go into a long, detailed story about it, but there was kind of this gift of faith that was given to me at one point where mm-hmm. I had been praying and praying and praying. But I didn't realize how strong that gift of faith was and how strong that belief in the real presence of Jesus there in the Eucharist was until it was a few years later. And I went to visit my mom, and it happened to be over a weekend. And we went back to the church where I had gone as a teenager. She was still attending that church. If I can interrupt, just for people who don't know your story, you were an evangelical Protestant, right? You right, had... grew up in a Baptist church. Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. And so went back to this Baptist church, and uh, I hadn't been back there since before I came into the Catholic church. So like I say, a few years. And when I walked in— it hit me so, just smack between the eyes, this strong realization of, oh my goodness, these are people who I I know them because I grew up seeing them practice their faith week in, week out. These are people who genuinely love Jesus, and they're trying to do as best as they can to live out their faith. But that church building, it felt so empty, Patrick, mm. with no tabernacle there. With I, I, I felt so sorry for them, even though, you know, and it, it, it was it was a pity that was, I, I hope at some point, you know, I'm not going to be able to get up there. They, they'd kick me out if I tried to go out and uh, go up on, on the, the front, you know, it, it, there at the pulpit and say, hey, you know, you all need to become Catholic because Jesus is really there. You know, you, mm-hmm. you can experience him in a real way that you're never going to get here in this church. Uh, but it, it, it was, it was such a strong affirmation and confirmation for me. Yeah, I can imagine, especially coming from the background um, our Baptist friends, you know, they say it's absolutely not Jesus. Correct. It's just a symbol of him. So in your own experience, especially as a convert, Josh, I'm a cradle Catholic, as I say, so I never I never had to go through that. I never had to make that leap. You have a perspective, especially for those maybe listening right now, for whom the Eucharist has never really been all that much of a <clears throat> an important thing for them. So with the Eucharistic Congress coming up in Indianapolis in July, there's an opportunity here for them to experience Jesus in the Holy Eucharist in a whole new way. There is. I, well, I mean, I guess it's kind of a both end, right? It's it's in the way that you've always had available to you because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but he draws us to himself, and we are the ones who get changed in the process. And so the fact that we get to encounter Jesus in a new way, it's its us. You know, God is always working at his maximum capacity. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. he talks about that in the Summa, uh, that everything that God can be doing, he is doing because he is all of that potential that is then the action of God. So we get to have God working in our lives and helping to bring us so we get to experience the fullness of God. And, and so I yeah. think that's that's the the exciting potential for us. You know, God is not just potential. He, he is everything he ever will be. But we have that potential to really come close to God and experience him as he's drawing, as he's working in our lives. So true. Now, that, of course, ties in with what, we were, what we've been talking about here for weeks and weeks now, which is the upcoming Congress. Um, I know your time's not unlimited. Thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk about this on the show. But I'm thinking about all the people who are saying, yeah, I really want that. And I know about the Congress. I'm not really sure, you know, can I go? Can I, what's involved? Um, So we have info for them. 
that will tie directly into this issue for those who are seeking more. That's exactly right. Yeah, if you if you go to relevantradio.com, our website, there on the homepage, you'll see a video of our good friend Drew Mariani, and he'll tell you a little bit about the background of the Eucharistic Congress. But then you can see there's a button you can click on there. You can also do this on the Relevant Radio app, and you can learn more about the National Eucharistic Congress. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, Patrick, you would think that an event like this would be kind of at the very end of this Eucharistic revival that the mm-hmm. U.S. bishops have called for, but it's actually only about two-thirds of the way through that revival. It's mm-hmm. it's meant to be something that it brings us together as a U.S. population so that we can take what we experience there that excitement, that fervor, and we can bring that back to our home parishes, to our families, to our communities, and we can really impact those in our local area with that same excitement. That, that's yeah. what the, I mean, that's why it's called a revival. We're trying to revive and bring that life back into our church if it's kind of, you know, grown a little bit stagnant. Yeah, so what practical things would you recommend? I know we have a lot of stuff on the website. Anything you want to draw attention to? You know, the main thing is there's a lot of different options for travel packages. Um, The the most important thing that just allows you to know why why is Relevant Radio offering travel packages? Because we're not (laughs) we're not a a travel agency, Um, but we've partnered with Nativity Pilgrimages, and we want to be able to offer you an opportunity to go. You, you actually, if you try and book a flight and get a hotel and, you know, all the different things, you'll spend more money than if you do with Relevant Radio. There's actually hardly any hotel rooms left in the city of Indianapolis for this event right now. And we actually have a very, very reasonable cost on ours that we were able to block off a group of, of hotel rooms. So... If you're looking to travel there, and we really hope you will, I, I hope you will, because this is going to be a life-changing experience. It's kind of a once-in-a-generation opportunity to participate in this. Um, but you can find out more about the travel packages. Even if you don't travel with Relevant Radio, if all you do is, you know, if you arrange your own your own travel, your own lodging, but get your ticket through Relevant Radio, the ticket to get into the Congress itself, because we have discounted rates on the tickets. And along with that, you get other things, including Father Rocky, our executive director here. He has a brand new book, Treasures of the Eucharist. Hasn't even been released. It's going to be printed this summer, and we'll have all the brand new copies. Anybody who gets their ticket through Relevant Radio will go ahead and, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll receive one of those books from Father as well. That's great. I'm looking at the website right now. Um, there are a lot of different options. Uh, so if you go to relevantradio.com, you'll see at the very top kind of this dominating reddish-purple field. You'll see Drew Mariani's smiling face. He looks like he's had maybe three, four cups of coffee before he got on camera. <laughs> he's animated. He's, he's, he's on, and he's explaining what's going on. But when you click on Lock in My Spot, that's where you see all the different options. And uh, as the counter said earlier, four, four months, two, day, two weeks, and six days away, it's going to happen quickly. So um, that's where they can get info on the packages, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with the dates, it's in July, July 17th through the 21st. And Patrick, you know, Drew, you... 
Father Rocky, um, a lot of us here from Relevant Radio. I mean, we can't just you know close up shop completely. We're going to have some of our <laughs> some of our team back here, but most of our team will be there at the National Eucharistic Congress. So it's a great opportunity just to be able to meet each other in person too. Yeah, and one of the things I mentioned when I was talking to Preston is that um, among the different packages that are available. Uh, all of them, from what I can see anyway, include a, uh, a meet and greet with Father Rocky and Drew and yourself, and I'll be there. Yep. And uh, I'm looking forward to that I meeting think it's as gonna many be a, listeners. Yeah, it's going to be—I'm really excited about it, Patrick. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> I think all of us are really gearing up. It's going to get here quickly. Well, anything more on that, Josh, before we have to wrap it up? No, just, uh, you know, don't wait because the, that time goes quickly. And, you know, if, if, if you have questions that you don't find answered on the website, we do have a phone number you can call and speak to a real person. And I'll give that out as well. It's 844-400-9559. Again, 844 844- 400-9559, and that allows you to talk to somebody if there aren't, if, if there are questions you can't find that answer to on the website. Excellent. Well, hey, Josh, thank you. Appreciate it, and um, thanks for dropping by. Thanks, Patrick. Always good to talk with you. You got it. All right. Well, we still have some time left in this hour, 888-914-9149. I don't know why I'm giving you the number. It's just habit. <laughs> we have full boards, so we'll try to get through as many as we can. Uh, start with uh, Chanel in Menifee, California. Hello, Chanel. Hi. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. So my question, um, my question today was, if God says to love your enemy, do we love um, Satan, which we call our enemy? The answer is no. And this is a very good question you're asking. It sounds counterintuitive, but here's why the answer is no. Because loving your enemy means that there's an opportunity by loving that person and praying for that person that he or she can not only become your friend, or at least not your enemy, but also to be saved. So that person would be in heaven, and we can all be friends in heaven. And the reason we don't pray for the devil is because he can't change. As a fallen angel, his decision is permanent. And he hates God, he hates you, he hates anything that's good. And he truly is an enemy in the fullest sense of the word, but he's one who can't change ever from being an enemy. So that's why we don't love him, we don't pray for him, we don't really have anything to do with him, we ignore him as much as possible, because his position is permanent, and he can never change. So there's no point in trying to love him or pray for him. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's the short answer. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a whole lot about angels. So if you're inclined to read what he wrote in the Summa Theologia, you might want to wait a few years before you try to tackle that. But there's a lot more that one can say, but I think that's the simple answer to your question. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for calling. Uh, let's go to Liz in La Cunata. Good morning, Liz, La Cunata, California. Good morning. In regard mm-hmm. to the Jehovah's Witness questions, Yes. On abstain from blood. I'd like to know if you abstain from blood in the correct interpretation of this, which is patronize a Jewish butcher who kills the animal by cutting the neck vessels, the heart pumps, Mm -hmm. continues to pump out all the blood. And then as opposed to American slaughter methods, which shoot the brainstem 
with a captive bolt and the heart is stopped because the heart center is not giving it electricity. And I want to know if you are abstaining from blood and from things strangled. As yeah, I think I understand the question, Liz. Um, and it's a good question. You're right. In, in Acts chapter 15, in verse 29, it says, you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled, and from unchastity. So the first thing to note is that this provision or this prohibition in Acts 15.29, in the case of blood, is provisional. It's not a permanent prohibition. So if you wanted to go, let's say, to a local steakhouse and have a rare steak, I don't like steaks rare, I know people who do, but there's still blood in the steak. You would not be committing a sin if you were to do that. Those Christians at that time would be because that was a provisional prohibition or discipline that they were that they had to observe. And a lot of that had to do with their witness to the Jews. They wanted to make sure that they didn't cause potential converts from Judaism to stumble. Um, but whether you eat a kosher piece of meat that had the, the animal slaughtered the way you described, or if you eat a piece of meat that still has some blood in it. Either way, now, under the new law, you are not committing a sin, if that's what you're wondering. Interesting question, Liz. Thank you. Well, I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Same Pat time, same Pat channel. And until then, I'll pray for you. Please pray for me. Adios, amigos.